This is They Create World, Episode 18, The 8-Bit British Computer Market Software. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create World. I'm Jeff, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Today, we are going over Britain again, this time with software. That's right. Last time, we spent a lot of time going over the hardware that was very unique to the British market that didn't really appear anywhere else during the 8-bit era. And just as their hardware was quite unique, so too then was the software that was played on it, not just in terms of the games being released there being different from the games released in the United States or Japan or whatnot, but also in the very genres that were popular because, as we'll see, the computer games industry in Britain was really targeting a very different demographic than the computer games industry was in the United States at the same period of time. I know we've talked over a little bit of this before. We talked a little bit about isometric games being a big thing in Britain and that coming over to the United States. I imagine there's other inventions that came up there. Yes, that's true. There are a few ways that they really displayed games very differently. Isometric was one of those. You really didn't see any isometric games in the U.S. market. It was all kind of top-down or side, you know, pure side-on. Obviously, there were a small number of games like the Sega arcade game Zaxxon, but that really wasn't very prevalent, and that's something that became rather widespread in Britain. And then... You kind of saw that migrating over to the United States because then in the early 90s, you started having more and more computer games that were isometric. The other thing is the entire open world game concept that products like Grand Theft Auto, which incidentally is a British game series, so personify is another thing that really came out of that British market as well. You can see that too, a little bit with uh, open-ended games, simulation games too, I would imagine. I remember an old PlayStation game called Sim Hospital that seemed to always have British accents. So it made me wonder if it originally originated from Britain. I presume you're talking about Theme Hospital uh, that was released in the late 90s? Uh, That's quite possibly it, because I don't remember the game that well. My (laughs) sister played that one a lot. I didn't get to play it that much. Sure, fair enough. And Theme Hospital was, in fact, a British game. It was created by Bullfrog, the same company that created Populous and Dungeon Keeper and Syndicate and several other games. And yes, obviously there were some, there were simulation games in the U.S. as well. I mean, in some ways, SimCity was kind of the game that almost started that, though in fairness, Populous came out the same year, 1989. But this idea of simulation and turn-based isometric strategy, not the theme hospital was turn-based, was something that was very British. XCOM, for instance, which is a well-beloved game in the United States, I think it's fair to say, was also a British game created by a British developer that built on earlier isometric tactical games that that he had made on 8-bit computers. And Again, this isometric view from XCOM. XCOM was one of the key games that really helped transfer the isometric view to the U.S. Diablo, for instance, was isometric because the developers of Diablo had been playing a lot of XCOM during the period of time they were developing the game. So there certainly is a lot of influences from Britain. Let's go back then, because we've gone over the hardware, starting all the way from the ZX Spectrum to ZX80 the Acorn. What was the first real big early hit computer game and what really set it apart from the others? Well, it's difficult to say what exactly was the first really big hit in the market. The market started out very small, right? We talked about how the early computers were selling tens of thousands of units. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't that much of a software market on the very early systems like the ZX80 and the ZX81 and the Acorn Atom. The reason for that being the restrictions that we've already talked about before in terms of memory and display capability and sometimes not even being able to display the screen at the same time you type a command, sometimes exploding. Yes. Technical difficulties. Well, I mean, 
Sinclair Computers didn't really explode. That was kind of his other products. But it's always fun to bring up exploding when you're talking about Sinclair. True. And it's just fun to bring up exploding when you're talking about video games because explosions are cool. (laughs) Exactly. So the early games were fairly primitive on the whole, and they were largely clones of arcade games. Mm -hmm. Space Invaders knockoffs, Defender knockoffs, all of that kind of thing. It really took the ZX Spectrum coming along to create kind of really interesting games. So it wasn't until the ZX Spectrum and the Commodore 64 really taking hold in Britain and surrounding Europe that we actually had the hardware at the capability level to support actually doing any game of consequence. That's true. And that's not to say that there weren't a few games before that, even some impressive games. There was one called 3D Monster Maze on the ZX81 that was really quite remarkable in that it displayed a 3D maze with a monster in it, exactly as as it sounds like. And obviously the graphics were bare bones, but even getting 3D on a ZX81. And it was real 3D as far as I know, with actual X, Y, and Z coordinates, you know, not cheated in some way. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it was cheated in some way, but (laughs) because even getting 3D on a system like that, but it was really in three dimensions. It wasn't just an optical illusion. And the monster wasn't 3D. The monster was just this sprite that kind of lumbered towards you. And there was no sound in the game, which in some ways even made it creepier. But basically the idea was you're in a maze, you have to get out of the maze, mm-hmm. and there's a monster moving around the maze as well, and the monster might get you. So it blended elements that would later be in first-person shooters, though there was no shooting in this game. It was merely navigation. It blended elements of what you would almost consider survival horror, just in the sense that you're running away from these existential threats, and you can get quite startled when it suddenly comes upon you and kills you. So that was a very interesting game, and I think it sold quite well, too. I don't think it quite hit 100,000 copies, but it sold pretty well. I'm not sure that that's the first hit on the system. I don't know as much about what was going on on the ZX80 and ZX81, just because those systems were so primitive, and the games were so primitive, and there's less documentation. So it's difficult to say what all were hits on that system. But there were a couple of companies. Uh, Really, one of the first places that things kind of pulled together is one of the very first computer stores in the entire country was a store in Liverpool called MicroDigital. And a fellow named Bruce Everest opened this store. And at that time, there really wasn't much going on in Britain. There were some very early kits, but it was you're mostly talking about importing stuff from the United States, like apples. And that's what he did. He imported some computers. He imported a lot of books, a lot of software books. This kind of became one of the first hubs for people that were interested in computers. I mean, people would drive from all over the country to come to MicroDigital. And it was a couple of people that were hanging around his shop a lot that founded what was really one of the very first computer software companies called Bugbyte, and a couple of his employees then even ended up working for Bugbyte as well. And that was one of the first companies to put out some games, again, essentially arcade clones. There was another company called Quicksilva that was established by a fellow named Nick Lambert, who was a pretty slick coder, and uh, he put a couple of simple games out. So this, this was kind of starting to take hold, but it really wasn't until that ZX Spectrum came out that the systems were sophisticated enough. At that point, there's a couple of things to kind of distinguish the British market from the U.S. market in this 8-bit software. In the United States, you had a thriving console market, and we talked about this a little bit before. The console market is where the kids went to play games. Mm -hmm. So all of your great arcade ports and whatnot tended to be on consoles. Now, there were arcade ports made on home computers as well, and some of them even did quite well. but the console was kind of your primary source in the late 70s and very early 80s for this kind of stuff. And in the home computers, you tended to get more cerebral, more strategy-focused games, in part because you had a lot of college students and recent college graduates getting involved on programming these computers, which were a little more expensive, so you need a little more disposable income to own one in the first place. And they were pulling from the tradition of some of the mainframe games that they had been exposed to on university campuses, which were more cerebral and less reflex-oriented by the very nature of the platform, because a time-shared mini-computer or mainframe 
actually has very few resources to devote to updating the screen, updating the state of gameplay constantly, because so much of the memory is tied up in just balancing all the different users that are on the computer at the same time and allow allocating computer resources between all of those people, which means that even though a mainframe has a lot of memory, an individual user on a timeshared computer won't have much memory. But it would then lend itself to having massive strategy games because you could have a ton of users on there all working together either against each other or against a common threat, whatever that may be, in the concept of the game. And it doesn't matter when you get back to it, as long as you get back to it within a certain period of time, like say everyone gets a move an hour or something. Sure, absolutely. Plus, it just even lends itself to large single-player strategy kind of experiences because there is more memory to store programs in, even though you don't have the RAM to update rapidly. You have all sorts of memory to store programs on, whereas on a console with a 2K or a 4K ROM cartridge or a floppy disk that's only a couple of K or whatever, well, it's more than a couple of K, but you know what I mean, you have a comparably limited program space. So those kind of strategy games lived side by side with a small number of action games, and there were some action games, but then the crash happened. And the crash really pretty thoroughly discredited arcade-style games in the United States. And we're talking about the big computer game crash in the 1980s? Uh, Console crash. We're talking about the great video game crash of 1983. That pretty thoroughly discredited arcade-style video games, period. Because, of course, there was an arcade industry crash right before the console crash, and then there was the console crash. And that pretty much spelled the end for almost three years of arcade-style games having dominance. So the arcade-style games on home computer platforms just they virtually vanish. You still have people playing games on their computers. Mm-hmm. And you have a small number of exceptions to this rule. Impossible Mission becomes a hit, which is a uh, platforming game. And you have the Games series from Epics, which are pretty Twitch-based games. Summer games, winter games, California games, etc. But for the most part, nobody's playing nobody's playing shooting games anymore on their home computers. Nobody's playing fighting games anymore on their home computers. They're just not an interest in that anymore, and there really isn't an interest until the NES comes back in and revives the market. And so until then, you just had all of this strategy games, pretty much turn-based and three-ball games. Right, strategy games as well as RPGs and adventure games and also military simulations start becoming quite big. Kind of realistic simulations of flying fighter jets or controlling naval ships, etc. That's the U.S. market. It's an older market, and it's a market that wants more sophisticated games, and it's less Twitch-based. Now, the U.K. never had that console market. We discussed this before. Just too expensive. There are very few Atari systems. And they also had that big push to get computers into the schools. So there was the idea that every child needed to have a computer in their life. Mm -hmm. So the home computers really were targeted in a big way at younger kids. And when I say younger kids, teenagers, late tweens, not that tween was a market demographic back then. This is kind of the crowd they were aimed at, the kids that were going to be exposed to these computers in the British equivalent of junior high and high school. So they didn't have consoles to play these kind of games on, so they played them on their home computers, and they didn't have a crash. You know, they were insulated from what's going on in the United States. That great video game crash is really a U.S. phenomenon only. Japan's fine, Britain's fine, because they didn't have these same console markets. So you find a younger crowd playing these games, teenagers, and you find them drawn to more of the arcade-type games. So arcade conversions and arcade knockoffs are a really big part of the business. And we're talking primarily shooters and platform games. Shmups, shoot-em-ups, and platform games. Hmm. You also find that most of the people creating the games are these teenagers doing them in their bedrooms. So really, it's a really homebrew market. You don't have an official company out there going, here's a game that we're porting. It's people who were already there. I already have this computer. And because I've been taught that, yes, computers are important. They're the big thing. 
and they learn how to code in it. They learn how to do things with it with just limited capability. And they go, well, I wish there was a game that did this. Or I remember seeing on TV a game that was like that. Or my friend who's over in the state had this kind of game. And why don't we have that here? They come up with something and it works pretty well. And they spread it with their friends. And because of the real communal nature of the British school system, it spreads amongst the kids pretty rapidly, I would imagine. Exactly. That was a big part of it. And the other thing is, in the United States, first of all, you know, the early adopters of the computers tended to be older because you needed some disposable income to get a TRS-80 or an Apple II. So you had people like Doug Carlston, who founded Broderbund, was a lawyer who just kind of got bored with his legal practice and had a TRS-80 and then started creating games on it. Or you had Scott Adams, who founded Adventure International, who was already a computer guy that was working at a satellite facility down in the Caribbean and in his spare time was fooling around with his TRS-80. You had Ken Williams of Sierra Online, who was a computer programmer who was basically doing contract work and had bought a home computer and was like, this is cool, and started programming on it. These are the people that were starting to program. Then also in the United States, because of the whole Silicon Valley phenomenon, you had a very robust investment market. So once you had these people being like, hey, maybe I should put out some games and maybe form a company, then after that, in relatively short order, they could start infusing venture money into these companies. They'd get bigger and they'd rope in more people and you had these kind of sophisticated publishers emerge. In the UK, you didn't have that venture capital investment opportunity. Raising money in Britain is just at least at that time, is just not something that's very easy. And that's been something that's played out over and over again. I mean, in the late 19th century, it was the same way. Britain was more advanced industrially because they had industrialized before the United States. But finding ready capital for a new idea, if you were kind of an inventive type, a lone inventor type, was very nearly impossible. So you found a lot of people coming to the United States. And that's kind of what drove the arcade industry, for instance. The arcade industry really got started in Britain, but it really blossomed in the United States because a lot of those British inventors came to the U.S. to get investment capital, and then that stuff spread more readily in the U.S. So you don't have these companies forming, not right away, not these big companies. You have a few developers forming, but you don't have these big publishers forming. You don't have distribution forming, not right away. So it's bedroom coders going to computer fairs, trade shows essentially, but not trade shows in the sense that they're industry sponsored, just micro fairs where people would get together and exchange stuff almost like fan I mean, convention today. In a way, in a way like fan conventions today. I mean, that's not quite apropos, but yeah, absolutely. There was a lot of mail order. Of course, there were some early magazines that came up to support this, and it was a very hacker hobbyist kind of environment. And this was true for the first couple of years of it. So you had a couple of publishers like Bugbite and Quicksilva, but it was very kind of indie and very kind of homebrew for a number of years, including SneakerNet distribution. You said that MicroDigital had a whole bunch of hobbyists hanging out in there. So I imagine some of those hobbyists came in and said, hey, I've came up with this cool little game. They try it out and they say, oh, yeah, that's awesome. And then sure, I'll put this in a Ziploc bag, sell it for five bucks or five pounds and split the money with you. Sure. And even as publishers started to emerge in the British market, a lot of what they published was submissions that they just got from teenagers. They would put out the call for software, and they'd get a flood of software from people, and then they would evaluate which ones they thought actually had marketing potential, and they would release those games on and pay the creators on a royalty basis. That was a lot of how the early British market got started. You know, that focus was really there, like I said, on those shmups and on those platform games. And there was almost entirely an arcade and a U.S. home computer influence to get it started. It was really games coming from outside Britain that got things started, but then the British kind of took some of those concepts and made them their own. Sort of like Japan. Sure, not quite to the same extreme in some ways, but yes, very much like Japan. And for example, one of the first really, really big stars in Britain in the programming scene was a 
a fellow named Matthew Smith. Matthew Smith was one of these brilliant kind of teenage coders that just had a real knack for this stuff. Started out by doing some arcade conversions, started in basic, as all beginner programmers tended to back then, and of course moved on to assembly and machine language because that's much faster. And he had a TRS-80, which was not a common computer in Britain. No, certainly not. And because he had a TRS-80, he was a little more dialed in to what was going on in the North American software market than some of his contemporaries were, knew some more of the games that were coming out over there. And one of those games that he was familiar with was an Atari 8-bit game called Minor 2049er. Minor 2049er was somewhat of a combination between Pac-Man and Donkey Kong. Hmm. It was a platformer. But kind of the conceit of this platformer is you had to traverse every square inch of each level. It was a single screen, uh, you know, like a single screen of Donkey Kong. But instead of just moving from the top or the bottom to the top like you would in Donkey Kong by the most expedient route, you actually have to traverse every last bit of every last platform. That's kind of where the Pac-Man influence comes in, because just like you have to navigate the entire maze to collect all the pellets mm-hmm. in Pac-Man, you know, you have to navigate the whole level. And this was one of those few kind of unique games that came out on home computers in the United States in the action category right before kind of the great video game crash. It was released in 1982. Matthew Smith saw that game, and he really liked kind of the basic idea of it, and he created a game called Manic Miner, the Miner influence coming directly from, you know, Miner 2049er. And again, this was a single-screen platform game. You didn't have to traverse every inch of every level like you did in Minor 2049er, but it was the same idea of having these individual single-screen levels with various platform configurations, various obstacles, various enemies, various conveyances and platforms, and requiring you to get from one side of the level to the other, not traversing everything, but getting to the exit of each level. And this game had a truly profound impact He was such a great coder that it was just much more technically adept than a lot of the games that were out at the time. It was an assembly. It ran really well. It was really smooth. He had pixel-perfect collision detection. Wow. And he did a a nice parabolic uh, jump arc for the character, uh, similar to what would be in Mario later, that just felt really good control-wise. And it was a challenging game, but it was a very popular game for all of these reasons. And that game kind of set the tone for the British market where you had all sorts of platformers come out after that. Then they kind of started building on that. So they started getting more sophisticated. Instead of just moving from one end of the level to the other, these games start evolving so that you have to collect things. Hmm. For instance, the follow-up, Jet Set Willy, is set in a multi-screen, it's set in... Minor Willie's house, Minor Willie being the star of these two games, and the house doesn't bear that much resemblance to what a real house would look like, but it's, it's multiple, it's all interconnected rooms, though each room serves as its own kind of puzzle box to solve. And there are items to collect all around the house, and you have to collect everything to win. So now you're moving from simple survival obstacle avoidance to collecting items in these kind of platform games. Okay, the next step, logical step from there is let's not just have obstacles between you and the objects. Let's have puzzles as well, puzzles that you have to solve. And so then you get into games like Night Lore from Ultimate Play the Game, which is the company that was founded by the Stamper Brothers, who later on founded Rare. Hmm. And they were, by far, they were light years beyond anyone else working on the ZX Spectrum. And they just created the most amazing graphical games. We've talked about their work a little bit in the past. We mentioned Attic Attack, for instance. They created this Night Lore game, which was one of the very first isometric games, and it had platforms, it had multiple rooms, it had obstacles and enemies, and it had puzzles. And so now you have this kind of new genre emerging in the United Kingdom was really unique to the United Kingdom that they called the Arcade Adventure. Hmm. Arcade, because there's lots of action elements. Adventure, because like a textographical adventure game, there are objects to collect, there's a treasure hunt, and then there's simple puzzles to solve as part of it as well. You see stuff like that on consoles in, say, Japan, 
a game like The Legend of Zelda would be what we might consider a console adventure game. And even in the United States, you have Adventure on the Atari 2600, which I'm guessing was an influence on the stampers in creating this arcade adventure concept. I can't be positive about that because the stampers are notorious for not giving interviews. Mm -hmm. But there are definite similarities between Adventure and Attic Attack, which was pre-Night Lore. It was kind of their first arcade adventure style game. It just it wasn't isometric like Night Lore. There's enough similarities, and the Stampers were very keenly aware of what was going on in the worldwide market in a way that a lot of their fellows were not, that I have to imagine you can draw a line from adventure to some of these early arcade adventures in Britain. So again, you have these different elements of U.S. games coming in. You have adventure with its kind of console action-adventure template, the same kind of thing Zelda would later do. You have these platformers like Minor 2049er that are becoming an influence, and then you have the British taking these different elements, mixing them together, and coming up with something very new and very unique. I can't really say that that arcade adventure concept really had much influence outside of the UK. That, that's almost a... Uniquely British thing? Yeah. You don't really see that then being drawn into the larger market. I mean, you do see those kinds of same games, the combined action, adventure, and puzzle solving and whatnot. But I think that really emerges out of the Legend of Zelda tradition in Japan and the United States. I don't think Zelda was influenced by what was going on in Britain. One of the Stamper Brothers, I forget which one, is kind of cheekily said that the Legend of Zelda was Miyamoto's take on Attic Attack, because as I think we discussed in a previous episode, there's certainly some similarities between what's going on in Attic Attack and what's going on in Legend of Zelda. Definitely. We uh, mentioned that before and showed a little video of that one. But I think that's uh, an example of parallel evolution. I think that's more coincidence. It seems pretty clear that Miyamoto was inspired a lot by Tower of Druaga, which came from Masanobu Endo, which came from his exposure to Dungeons and Dragons in the United States, and not anything to do with what was going on in Britain. So it's, it's an evolutionary dead end in a way, but it's a very interesting evolutionary dead end and something that's uniquely British and that the, the British can take a lot of pride in because it was very different than what was going on in the States. Other than the fact that, of course, that isometric viewpoint gets carried forward and forward and forward. So that's one aspect of that. So there's kind of an example of how a British genre evolved from taking what was going on in the United States and Japan and, and turning it to something all their own in this kind of homebrew, hackerish, hobbyist kind of way. So that's the homebrew section of it. At what point did you really see business start to come in and you get actual what we would consider publishers, actual developers and distribution? what we would consider a proper industry and all that. Absolutely. So that comes in pretty soon after. I mean, that's really starting to develop in the 1983-1984 time period where you're starting to see some companies with a little more sophistication coming in. In regards to distribution, after the ZX Spectrum came out, uh, distribution actually became pretty easy relatively quickly at that point. Basically, there was this whole view that we discussed a little bit last time around where the British felt that the computer industry could actually save their highly depressed economy. It wasn't just that, oh, isn't this new computer thing nice? It's that we need to be leaders in this microcomputer thing because these are going to be so huge and we can turn this into a new British industry. And as we discussed before, that never quite happened. But because of this idea, the major chain stores in Britain were very interested in computers much faster than they were in the U.S. They were more ready to adopt computers into their push it as a marketing item and say, hello, citizen, here's this beautiful computer you want to buy. Here's some software you want to get and come back if you have any questions. Exactly. So W.H. Smith's which is, I guess you could call it in some ways, the Barnes & Noble of the United Kingdom, was very interested in computers and partnering with, with Sinclair from pretty much the beginning of the ZX Spectrum days. 
W.H. Smith was taking computer software already in the kind of 1982 and 1983 period. And once W.H. Smith got into it and had some success with it, some of the other chains like Boots and Dixons that were also very big chains, electronics or book chains in the U.K., also got involved very quickly. And so you kind of had these national chains stocking software. And because Britain is, we have to remember, a, a very small country. Once you have two or three major retailers carrying these products, that's enough to reach most of the British population, or at least most of the British population that's going to be interested in computers. You've got saturation at that point. Exactly. So in the U.S., because the U.S. is so huge, it took a long time for kind of these national chains to coalesce. You had a lot of regional kind of dealers, or even, you know, restricted even just one city. So the process of developing distribution required a middleman, required someone that was actually a distributor, because you couldn't just make two or three phone calls. You had to make 50 phone calls to get your software uh, good showing nationwide, 100 phone calls. I, I don't know exactly how many, but lots and lots of phone calls. Getting it all over the U.S., it's really, really hard. Right. And a logistical nightmare. Getting your stuff all over Britain is, okay, I just need to get some buddies from school together. We got this thing licked in an evening. Well, you still kind of need a publisher, but the point is you can have one or two sales guys, and your one or two sales guys can form relationships with all the retailers you need to worry about and get your product out there. In the U.S., you need dozens of sales reps, and a publisher, a small computer game publisher, just isn't going to be able to take that on themselves. And so very quickly, you saw the middleman of the distributor develop because the distributor could employ that large sales force whose only purpose was to, to sell those products at a bunch of stores. So you didn't see distributors really popping up in the same way as you did in the United States with companies like SoftSell. You saw direct relationships with kind of two or three major chains and then maybe a small number of smaller mom-and-pop uh, style stores. And that's how you got your product out. So these companies started developing some sophistication very quickly. The first ones into the market tended to be a little less business savvy. Companies like Bugbyte and Quicksilva that were very successful early on tended to give way very quickly to a new wave of slightly more sophisticated publishers. And there are really kind of three companies that you can point to in these very early days as being particularly interesting. Two of them that did very well and one of them that did not. <laughs> hmm. Kind of the first publisher to garner real nationwide attention was a company called Imagine Software. I think we, they came up once or twice before. We might have. I, I can't recall. Imagine was founded by a couple of Bugbite employees. So Bugbite kind of started falling apart. People started drifting away from it. They actually had Manic Miner. That was their game. But Matthew Smith got kind of sick with working with them, and so he went off with a couple of other people and founded his own publisher that lasted for a brief period and even got to take Manic Miner with them because Bugbite wasn't even sophisticated enough to lock up exclusive rights to the game. <laughs> and so they kind of lost that, and then they had a couple of their employees go off to found this company called Imagine. You know, people are kind of drifting away, and Bugbite ends up falling apart. Imagine was built on basically a single game. It was a shoot 'em up called Arcadia, created by one of its founders, Dave Lawson. It was a very slick, very smooth shoot 'em up on the Spectrum. It was released in 1982 when there was still very little Spectrum software, and so demand for any kind of Spectrum software was very high. So if you had a particularly good Spectrum product, then your sales shot through the roof. And so Arcadia did phenomenal business. Bruce Everest, who we talked about, the founder of Microdigital, was brought in to help manage the company because he had business experience. And so Bruce Everest started creating this real persona around the company, that these were high-flying, highly successful individuals. They built hype around the company that really wasn't fully deserved. They had slick packaging. They were promoting these teenagers claiming that they were making tens of thousands of pounds and driving big, fast cars and all of this. And certainly the owners of the company had luxury sports cars, but I mean, not everybody did. It 
they just they built everything on image. They were like electronic arts in that sense. They were almost in some ways like the electronic arts of Britain, except that electronic arts took all of this flashy stuff and layered it on top of a solid group of games and a solid group of game developers. Imagine was all flash and no substance. It turned out that they couldn't really follow up on the success of Arcadia. Their next few games were very pedestrian and and not very interesting. And then they started putting all of their resources into creating what they called their mega games. Mm -hmm. What they had done is, to back up for a second, piracy in the UK. Really bad. Really? Really bad. Well, I imagine because of the home boom market, and originally if all the software distributed by, hey, a friend of a friend here gave me this game. Remember this too. Cassette-driven market. Oh, right. So if you just have to do a <laughs> tape, you just have a tape recorder recording to another tape recorder, and usually you can always have uh, a lot of the consumer ones had a two-tape system, and you could just put one in, put another one in, and hit transfer. Exactly. And this was just when that kind of technology was becoming cheap and popular. Amstrad, which we talked about last time because they eventually got into the home computer market, in about this time period, 1983-1984, they release a really cheap cassette-to-cassette cassette, you know, recorder. I mean, their advertising even for it just is basically built all around the idea of copying stuff. Mm-hmm. And this really destroys the British market. I mean, okay, so software publishers always talk about how piracy is ruining their business. Right. And they always, let's be honest, they always exaggerate a little bit. Yes, piracy is a problem. No one's claiming it's not, but they always tend to exaggerate a little bit. And so I'm sure in this British case, there was also some exaggeration, but it was a real problem and not one to be taken lightly because I remember, I forget which company it was now, but I read the story once, uh, this one company that got a bunch of tapes back from the retailer, maybe even been imagined, but I'd have to look, got a bunch of tapes back from retail as defective. Well, they tested a few of them and all of them worked. They weren't defective. Kids bought the cassette, went home, copied it, claimed it was defective, returned it to the retailer. And wow. then and then the retailer doesn't know any better, returns it to the publisher. And as we've talked about a billion times before by this point, retailer doesn't eat that. Yes, the publisher. Returns get eaten by the publisher. So piracy in 83 and 84 was becoming a huge problem, and not just piracy. In the U.S. market, you have to deal with piracy. But one thing that you don't have to deal with in the U.S. market, the floppy disk-based market, is commercial counterfeiting on a massive scale, because these cassette tapes, you had a cassette tape, which is a very simple label on it, and very mm-hmm. simple packaging. I mean, they're barely beyond the Ziploc baggy phase that by this time the U.S. market has already transitioned out to into full-size boxes. You have very simple packaging and just very simple cassettes. You just had out-and-out counterfeiting going on. So All I have to do is just go and buy the game once, get a good recorder, make a bunch of tapes, lap on some labels, put it in a fancy Ziploc bag, make it look nice and presentable, and go and say, yeah, I'm distributing this. Give me 20 pounds. Right, and it's not that the, it's not that the stores were even trying to be complicit in piracy. It just could be very hard to tell the difference. So you had commercial piracy on a widespread scale. You had piracy amongst the consumers on a widespread scale. And so Imagine came up with this idea, let's put a piece of hardware, plug it into the spectrum, that sits between our game and the computer and is required for our game to run. The first hardware lockout. In a way, right. It's kind of trying to get some of that cartridge functionality, or not functionality, but cartridge advantage into into this home computer thing. And so, of course, once they had a piece of hardware that they were going to have anyway, they were like, well, let's not just have this be a, a go-between between the computer and the software. Let's actually use this to add more memory and expand our software. Therefore, we sell it better as a, yeah, we lock you down to not being able to copy it, but we're going to be really quiet about that part of it. We're going to sell this as, 
with this new special chip that you plug into your ZX Spectrum, you're going to make those Commodore 64 kids cry and envy. Sure, something like that, exactly. And so they came up with this Mega Games project idea, but it was overly ambitious. They really had no direction. Uh, management was very poor. They weren't supervising properly. They were hiring teams of artists and musicians and didn't have anything for them to do, so they had all this payroll. They were constantly moving to bigger buildings before their leases were up on their older buildings, and so they would be paying rent on two buildings at once and only using one of them. I mean, all of this mismanagement is going on, and these mega games are going nowhere, and they're being hit by this piracy problem because the entire industry basically goes through a shakeout in this 83-84 period, partially brought on by a gold rush mentality where too many publishers came into the market and the market couldn't support that many, and partially brought on just because piracy is crippling sales for some of these companies. They're just bleeding money left and right. Exactly. And so they end up collapsing, and they end up collapsing in the most ridiculously hilarious way possible. Because right before they started collapsing, they got in touch with a producer of a television program called Commercial Breaks Mm -hmm. that discusses companies that have made it big, a documentary series that talks about companies that make it big. So they have this deal with this television show to, you know, film the company. And they are actually there as the company's going under. And they're actually documenting the, it ends up they actually document the company going under. Their equipment, they actually, they all are out at lunch. The film crew and some of the executives from Imagine are all out to lunch. And it's while they're out at lunch that the bailiffs come and lock the building because the, you know, the assets are being seized to pay off debts. (laughs) So this BBC film crew almost loses their equipment because their equipment is locked in with everything else. And it took quite some convincing to be like, no, this isn't their equipment. This is our equipment. We're the one documenting all this stuff. And so their their collapse ends up being playing out on national television. Oh, my. So that's the story of the company that didn't make it. And it's a very good example of how the industry was starting in that period to become more sophisticated and required more sophisticated businessmen. Uh, The other companies were far more successful. One of those is a company called Mastertronic. Mastertronic was founded by three individuals, Frank Herman, Alan Sharam, and Martin Alper, who had been in kind of the cut-rate video rental business. Hmm. This is the period of time when VHS tapes are just starting to permeate. And what they would do... Would it be Betamax in Britain? No, no, VHS at this point. Okay. Betamax, I mean, Betamax still exists, obviously, but Betamax was a late 70s technology, and VHS was starting to make headway in the early 80s. Okay. What these fellows had done is they got involved in the video business They found stuff that they could license cheaply and then sell it at really discount rates in in their store and therefore make some money on, you know, budget video stuff, essentially. They did this under the name Master Vision. And they also did some similar kind of stuff with music, with records under the name Master Sound. So now they took this idea into game software with Mastertronic. Master and electronics, you know, combined. And they came up with a new concept that became very important to kind of the way things were done in Britain, and that was budget software. What do you mean by budget software? Uh, Exactly as it sounds. Really cheap software. So the average game at this period of time cost about six pounds. Doesn't sound too bad. No, because it's cassette tape, right? So that's why it's... So much cheaper. I mean, in the U.S., six pounds is maybe closer to well, 10 or $12, yeah. which is still uh, about half the price of what you're paying for a decent computer game in the U.S., but still on cassette tape, no big fancy manuals, no big fancy boxes, all very simple. But still, we talk about the lower cost of living and all of that, and so not lower cost of living. We've talked about the lower standard of living and all of that, and so stuff needs to be cheaper. The Mastertronic guys decided they were going to sell software for two pounds. Two pounds. Mm-hmm. And obviously the margins are going to be very small on that. 
but the, they plan to make up for it on high volume. And what they do is they they start kind of a racking business. They become jobbers. Basically, a lot of times, you know how your stores, even today, like your Walmarts and Targets and whatnot, will often have those discount DVD bins right up at the front where yeah, they put all... Leaders. Exactly. Nowadays, I think a lot of that stuff in the retail business is actually controlled by the stores that do it. But back in the day, when you had those kind of discount racks and whatnot, they were actually usually run by an outside company. The outside company would design the rack, design the packaging, choose what went into the racks, and then take those to the stores and you know, give them to the stores at a, at a cut rate, and then they'd be sold in the stores, and then the jobber would you know, split the profits with, with the store. Mm-hmm. And so Mastertronic got into the racking business. They would create these cardboard displays for their Mastertronic games. They would take these displays around to any store that would take them. I mean, even things like, you know, even gas stations or whatnot, gas stations, convenience stores, discount houses, department stores, whoever, whoever would take them and they would maintain these displays. (laughs) Right maintain these displays with these really cheap games in them. And so they would make up for the fact that they were so cheap by selling really high volume. And budget software kind of revolutionized the British market. In fact, it got to the point where it almost started becoming difficult to sell full-priced software sometimes just because the budget games were so massively popular. Yeah, you think about it. If I can buy all this great software for two pounds, why would I spend six or more? And it was pretty decent software. I mean, obviously the games were more simplistic, but just by the very nature of the systems at the time and the cassette medium, a lot of stuff was going to be simplistic anyway, whether you charged a small amount or a large amount for it. So budget software became a huge part of the British market, and Mastertronic essentially invented the budget category. In fact, budget software became such a thing in the UK that when in 86, 87, 88, when the US publishers decided that they really needed a budget category too because new games were getting more and more expensive and they needed something to kind of fill a a middle range, they actually often turned to the UK to import UK products to serve as budget software in the United States. That was another example. That was another business kind of strategy that was pioneered first in the UK and then came back to uh, the United States. And that's Mastertronic. And then another company that became very big is Ocean. You may have heard of Ocean because they released a lot of console games in the US and in, on the NES and SNES and, and whatnot. Personally, I don't remember the, publish, or the publisher, but um, what kind of games did they come out with in the States? Licensed products, mostly. And that's kind of what their big contribution was. It was founded by a couple of guys, David Ward and John Woods, who, again, were not in the computer business at all, weren't really computer savvy before founding the company in 1984. But they saw that this was a new market that was exploding, and they kind of understood the power of licensing. And kind of their idea was, let's license hot arcade properties, and let's license hot media properties, television shows, movies, etc. And let's convert these arcade games, which have built-in name recognition, and let's build games around these media properties, and those will become big hits. They were actually the second kind of company to do that in Britain. There was another one called Elite Systems that came right before them that also had a lot of success doing that and I think really pioneered the concept more than the Ocean people did. But the Ocean people were the ones that got really good and really successful at it. So they're sort of like the British version of Acclaim. Yes. That is very true. And they had some really big hits. Uh, Robocop was a very big hit for them, for instance. Mm-hmm. I believe Platoon's an ocean game. Platoon? Yes. My old buddy Platoon. You can look that one up and let me know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I played Platoon way too much, probably because I hated myself. And uh, you can see Ocean and Mastertronic are really leading this transition. Beforehand, you had people that were already into computers kind of running companies. Now you have businessmen coming in and establishing companies and establishing business models. And this is where the market goes. And the 
the market essentially bifurcates along these two systems that Mastertronic and Ocean represent. From this point forward, 1984-1985, after the shakeout, most of the big software in the UK, certainly not all of it, but most of it is either a licensed game, arcade conversion or a licensed media property adaptation, or a budget game. Hmm. That kind of becomes the British market. What happened to the homebrew, sneaker net, uh, hacker development? Some of that carries on for a while. There's certainly throughout the 8-bit market, there's still a lot of people that are just kind of doing these brilliant things on their own and then finding a publisher and getting it released. That never goes away. Ultimate Play the Game does its thing for a couple more years before they get out. A lot of them, quite honestly, end up transferring their energies to the NES market. Really? That's what the Stampers do with Rare. Uh, another company called Melbourne House does that. Uh, Ocean, which is one of the big guys, ultimately does that. There's uh, a lot of that going on because even though the NES isn't in the UK in the 1980s, it's just it's such a big market in the United States that they feel that they should get in on that. Codemasters is another one. The Game Genie, that was created by a British company, Codemasters. Really? Mm-hmm. Well, we thank you, Britain, for providing us easy ways to beat those horrible games. That's right. So some of them went and moved to the NES market. Some of them kept plodding along. There were certainly still some people doing some amazing things. Jez Son, for instance, on Argonaut Software, he created some on the 16-bit computers, some incredibly impressive 3D games like Star Glider. And then he was like, you know... We can do this 3D stuff on consoles, too. And so he went to Nintendo and was like, look at this 3D stuff we're doing on consoles. And then they created a little thing called the Super FX chip. Eh, never went anywhere. And were the programmers, not the designers, but the programmers of a little game called Star Fox. Yeah. So there was that stuff going on. And then, of course, there was the biggest phenomenon of all, which was Elite which was done by David Braben and Ian Bell, basically on their own, which just introduced this concept of this vast open world that you can explore and this sandbox-style gameplay. Grand Theft Auto, as it exists today, you know, owes a huge debt to Elite. And, and Elite is the space flight sim where it procedurally generates the entire known Milky Way galaxy. And it's huge and really big and complex, but it's well, it's, it's 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 not the Milky Way galaxy. It's they they created their own galaxies. I thought it was based off of the Milky Way one. No, huh? Randomly generated using Fibonacci sequences. Okay, yeah. So it procedurally generated. It creates everything. You don't have to have a whole map pre-made. It's all based off of math and created automatically via equations. And you fly around, you can do trade things, you can fight some alien pirate things or whatever, and it's just really a unique game considering the time frame it came out and just how mind-bogglingly big it is. Exactly. At the time, everything was still influenced by the arcade. It took a long time for the console industry and the computer game industry both to kind of shed its arcade roots. I mean, you had some things like RPGs and adventure games that obviously came out of a computer tradition. But if you had something that involved action of any kind, it was still all based around arcade games. Three lives. Why have lives in a console game? I mean, there's no point. Because console games you can just play forever and ever and ever. But of course, in arcade games, they want to limit the amount of time you're playing the game on a single quarter. So lives. Score as an objective. Another thing that is just meaningless in a console game, you need something like a score in an arcade game because your playtime is going to be so short on that game that it's not about exploration, it's not about completing everything because they want you off in a hurry. So how do you measure your success on a game like that? You measure it via score. So all these things like score and lives and continues and all of this stuff is really an arcade phenomenon transferred over to consoles and computers, which really don't need that. Mm -hmm. And David Brabant and Ian Bell were two of the first people to realize that. And they were like, hey, 
we don't need to have this linear action game. We can make an open world action game. We don't need to track success via score. We can use something else. And they decide that something else would be currency to upgrade your ship. This turned computer gaming on its head. I mean, this is so revolutionary because no one was thinking in those terms. I mean, you had RPGs that had exploration elements, but even then your RPG had a quest. And most of that exploration was towards solving that quest. There still wasn't just going off and doing your own thing out in the world. You had an end goal, and it would pretty much predetermine the path to ultimately get to the goal the quickest. Right. And Elite did have an end goal in the sense that you were trying to progress through the ranks by killing things until you reached Elite status. But... How you achieved that goal was left completely open. How you found the money to upgrade your ship was left completely open. You could do it through piracy. You could do it through hunting down pirates. You could do it through trade. And if you had more fun just buying low, selling high, than working towards elite status, then that was okay, too. Even though there was an objective, it's not like you had to be playing the game just for that objective. There was fun to be had outside of that objective. So... This was a whole new way of thinking of games that was, I'm sure there were some antecedents, nothing nothing new under the sun and all that, but that was not very typical and really paved the way for these bigger, more open-ended sandbox-style games. And that's certainly one of the biggest legacies of that British 8-bit computer market. Okay, so it sounds like they actually had a really big market going on there. You had the homebrew that became the proper business, and you got some really unique software and some really unique concepts, and people are coming out there making a lot of money, doing some really inventive, cool things, and actually influencing things back in the States and around the world. So where does it really go from there? And we, you said before that between the 8- and 16-bit computer era, the hardware side of it completely collapsed. I can only imagine how that affected the software side, especially since with 16-bit computers, you've got what's already established out there with established hardware coming in then. How do these British 8-bit publishers survive or transition? So there's definitely a British 16-bit computer software market. And we won't go into too much detail on that since we're focused on the 8-bits here. But Basically, the British market was allowed to flourish in the way it was because they had unique hardware, which not only meant that they weren't exporting to other places, but it also meant that not huge amounts of software were coming into Britain. Now, some did. One of the other major publishers of the 8-bit era that we didn't talk about yet was one called U.S. Gold, Mm -hmm. which made its name basically on importing U.S. software from companies like Microprose and Accolade and Access Software and whatnot and converting it to run on the British platforms and converting it to cassette format and releasing that software. So some U.S. software was coming in, more mostly action-oriented titles. But when they were in this kind of closed ecosystem, they could really thrive because there was no competition from these more sophisticated publishers. As the platforms began to merge, there began to be more of this competition. Activision and Electronic Arts both established heavier UK presences and European presences in the late 80s. The NES console market pulls some of these British 8-bit developers off into console land, like Codemasters and Rare and whatnot. Other developers do continue making games for the 16-bit platforms, and actually, like the Amiga and the Atari ST, and actually make some pretty impressive games. The publishing clout really starts to lessen, though. Even though there are a lot of developers on the 16-bit platforms, now that these U.S. publishers with more money and more sophistication are moving in, they're starting to take over a lot of the publishing, while the British publishers that don't have the same level of funding or business sophistication start to fall by the wayside. Ocean is still very successful. Cygnosis, which is a new publisher that emerges out of the ruins of Imagine, is very successful. But Populous, for instance, which was such a groundbreaking god game from Bullfrog, was published by Electronic Arts. Hmm. XCOM, which we discussed earlier, was published by Microprose, which also established a significant UK presence in this period. So you went from 
UK publishers to a lot more international publishers, though there were still some big UK publishers remaining. The final kind of death knell for the UK publishing scene was the arrival of the consoles in earnest. In the early 1990s, consoles finally start permeating the UK. And Sega is the big company. Nintendo does not do that well in the console market in Britain compared to Sega. Both the Sega Master System, which was a complete flop in the United States, and the Sega Genesis, which of course also did very well in the United States, called the Mega Drive in Britain. Actually called the Mega Drive in Japan, too. That's the original name of the system. They had to change it to Genesis in the U.S., I'm not exactly sure why. Most of the time people say it was because of a trademark conflict, but mm -hmm. there's actually no evidence of that. It may be that just the Americans wanted a different name. But the point is, it's called the Mega Drive. So those systems are insanely successful. And you're getting to the point now as consoles start coming in, consoles are so much more expensive to develop for that it's becoming harder and harder for the British publishers to have enough capital to publish on those systems. And they can't take refuge in the computer market? Well, by the time when the consoles start coming in, that computer market starts falling apart a little bit. Plus, at the same time the consoles are coming in, the PC is finally coming in. So the Amiga and the ST, even though they were U.S. computers, they didn't do very well in the U.S. They did fairly well, reasonably well, in the United Kingdom. So there was targeting the Amiga and ST platforms, and there wasn't a lot of competition from American companies because those platforms didn't do very well. By 93-94, the Amiga is done, Commodore's gone bankrupt, and now the PC is taking over Europe in the same way that it's taking over the U.S. So again, you have American computer game publishers starting to muscle in on the British computer gaming market. Okay, so since you have such a permeation of IBM-compatible PCs going everywhere and it's essentially going global, the pre-established software overlords in the United States are just spreading it everywhere. Right, and the British publishers just can't compete. Now, many British developers are still able to compete. There are some very significant developers in this period, like Bullfrog that does Syndicate and Dungeon Keeper and Theme Hospital, like DMA Design, which does the early Grand Theft Auto games. British developers are still able to find a niche, but the publisher base kind of goes away. Psygnosis, which is very successful in the 16-bit era, is bought by Sony because Sony needed a publishing base in Europe for launching the PlayStation. So they go away. Ocean ends up being purchased by Infogram in France because in the mid-90s, as part of the kind of tech bubble, France has a period where technology stocks are in great demand. And so French publishers end up becoming far better capitalized than British publishers because their stock market really invests in these game companies. So Infogram ends up with a lot of cash and they purchase Ocean, also purchase a smaller British publisher called Gremlin. Elite, which we talked about, which had some success with the licensed games, they just find that they can't compete anymore. The company doesn't go away, but they get out of games because they just find they're being squeezed out by larger publishers. Uh, Mastertronic actually <laughs> becomes Sega Europe, essentially. Uh, that's oversimplifying a little bit, but they end up getting purchased by Virgin, uh, which invests in them so that Mastertronic can become the UK distributor of the Genesis, the Mega Drive. And then the software stuff gets split off into Virgin Games and the hardware stuff gets split off into Virgin Europe. And so Virgin Interactive becomes a major UK publisher for a time, but they end up falling apart and getting sold. It's just the British can't compete well on the international stage because they can't capitalize as readily. They don't have the easy access to capital that the US publishers do. And so just about the only one that comes out of it okay is... IDOS, which buys U.S. Gold, which we talked about, buys a couple of other companies, forms them together into a publisher, and lucks into Tomb Raider. <laughs> and I say lucks in because it was under development at one of the developers that they bought while they were forming this kind of conglomerate, and they were just lucky that that was under development already. And they were able to capitalize on it and make a buttload of money. Right. So after this 8-bit era, and especially after the 16-bit computer era, the British publisher is, for the most part, 
over. But the British developer continues to flourish on a small scale, and the British developer still continues to influence developments in game design up to the present day. I mean, the Grand Theft Auto games, including Grand Theft Auto 3 and whatnot, the 3D sandbox ones, most popular games on the planet, and British developer. So clearly still very important, just not so much in the publishing scene. So that's really what happens is all the distribution stuff pretty much collapses, all the hardware development collapses, and the only thing that survives from the ashes is really just a few dedicated developers who come up with really interesting concepts that take hold on the world stage for the most part. That's more or less correct, with a few exceptions like IDOS and Codemasters, which manages to to keep along as a mid-tier publisher as well. They uh, basically fade from the publishing scene, but certainly the, the games they developed have lived on. Certainly have. Um, anything else to cover? I think that about does it. What will we be doing next time? Well, for a long time now, through almost every single episode that we've ever recorded, we keep tiptoeing around this whole concept that in 1983, the U.S. video game industry kind of fell off a cliff. We may have even brought it up in this episode. That's right. Uh, This is really, it's a defining moment in the history of video games. Even though the crash was localized to the United States, even though... The crash was just localized to consoles with a concurrent crash in arcade games that that was happening at the same time. You can really divide the early history of the video game industry, even across other platforms like home computers, even across other countries like Japan and the United Kingdom, between, you know, before the crash and after the crash. Because even though its direct impact outside of the United States was very minimal, it still kind of resonates in the way the market developed even up to the present day. Even in the 90s, when the market had fully recovered, there was still, every time that there would be a small dip in revenue, pundits would be like, the crash is coming in, it's going to be another crash. I mean, it just hung over the entire industry for well over a decade. And If not longer. If not longer, and completely change the balance of power in gaming. So this is an important subject. It's also a complex subject. And quite frankly, it's a fairly misunderstood subject. And I think it would be very useful to take multiple episodes and kind of work our way through what was going on in consoles, what was going on in arcades, what was going on in home computers, and how the crash just kind of changed everything. All right, so definitely a big episode come June. Absolutely. All right, we will see you next time, June 1st, for The Great Video Game Crash Part 1. Check out our show notes at tcwpodcast.podbean.com, where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at tcwpodcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward found at joshwoodward.com forward slash airplane mode used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rollum Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license.